Welcome to Huddle Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Sharice Lutzen. Hi, Sharice. How are you? I'm good. How's it going, Mark? I'm no, it's going pretty good. It's you know, it's late on a Friday afternoon. It's as we're recording this, Sharice. It's you know, it's a little cold out. It's been a long week, but we're heading into the weekend. We are. I was just thinking, like, I literally it's that time of year where I have to turn the heat on in my apartment. Like, I don't know what it's like at your place across the street, but I couldn't put it off anymore. It's getting too chilly. Yeah, I haven't turned on the heat in the house yet, but uh, but I've, uh, we, I find that we're I'm cranking the heat in the car now all the time. Right, right. I'm also like unusual, like I'm unusually cold all the time, so that's probably part of it. But it's we're getting to that we're getting to that uh, that point in the year. <laughs> oh, definitely, regrettably, but but it's true, Sharice. We have to, we have to face the uh, the long cold winter that's coming. Right. So, who's our guest today? Well, our guests this week are we're having we're sort of having a continuation of a conversation that we started uh, a few episodes ago, Sharice, when we talked to uh, Gordon Pitts about his book Unicorn in the Woods, and this is the book that was about uh, the story of Q1 Labs and uh, Radiant Six. Mm-hmm. And um, earlier this week, I was uh, reading a piece in Ontravester, and which is a you know a tech news uh, publication out of Halifax, but it covers Atlantic Canada, and our good friend. Uh, Peter Marrera is uh, the editor and, and owner of that publication, and he's actually one of our guests today. Awesome. And uh, in, Peter's, in, in Peter's piece, which I'm very excited to be able to get Peter into a podcast, we actually talked about this a few weeks ago of, uh, about podcasts, and so I'm thrilled to get him onto one. And Peter had written a piece in Entrevestor about Catherine uh, Lockhart, the new, um, the new uh, head of uh, Propel, who you wrote, wrote about a few weeks ago. Yes, I did. Yeah, and so in the piece that he wrote about uh, Propel, about sorry, about Catherine joining Propel, um, she had talked about the idea of creating baby unicorns. So the unic- the idea of the unicorn being, and I can't remember Sharice, but it's something like a, a unicorn is a you know is a is a company worth a trillion dollars or some billion dollars. <laughs> Right. It's um, a really high amount of money that neither of us will ever attain. But yes. yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, that that's very true, Sharice, though, though we will keep trying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on my third media startup and I'm, you know, I'm waiting for that one to be worth a billion. You know, oh, but yeah. I'm, I'm not holding out hope. <laughs> So, um, so the the idea that the unicorn being a, you know a very valuable startup essentially, uh, and Q1 Labs and Radian Six uh, had both sold you know separately for you know around a half a billion each, um, give or take. Sharice, I think uh, Q1 Labs uh, sold for a little bit more than Radian Six, but you get the point. These were very valuable, um, very successful startups, and. I, I, but I, the reason why I was interested as I read this piece is, you know, we since the Radiant Six uh, Q1 Lab sales, there has always been that that discussion in in the Atlantic tech sector. But where is the next unicorn? Where is that next big breakout company? And that that's you know a noble ambition, but it it, it also has felt like it's kind of weighed us down, um, always in search of that next big company. So. When I saw this mention uh, by Catherine of, well, maybe we need to create baby unicorns and we should focus on creating 100 baby unicorns, uh, smaller but very still very successful companies, it, it caught my attention. And, and because Peter, uh, you know, has, has so much uh, experience, um, you know, not just covering the tech sector, but he also does uh, data collection and data analysis, um, I thought what a great opportunity to have 
uh, both Catherine, who's been on the job here for two months and and recently moved back from from Germany and settled back into back into New Brunswick. She's originally a New Brunswicker, but has come full circle and uh, is uh, just, uh, you know, starting out in her job and, and uh, charting its sort of future course of the organization. It was a good opportunity to have the both of the two of them on and talk about this idea, the baby unicorn, and also talk about the present and future of the tech sector. Well, this sounds like it's going to be an excellent conversation uh, among three very, very smart people. I have to tell you, Sharice, I said this at the end, I definitely did not feel like the smartest person in the conversation. (laughs) It was was a wonderful conversation with these guys. I really enjoyed it and got a lot from it. Yeah, no, I'm sure. And I'm sure our listeners will too. So here's our interview. Morning, Catherine. Peter? Good morning. And how are you doing this morning? Just great. Excellent. And uh, Catherine, um, I just uh, delivered a a microphone to you about an hour ago to use for this session. And it was um, in Rosse, which is a small town outside of of St. John, a suburban community of St. John. And uh, you've got a lovely spot out there. Um, I think anyone who, who's been to Rosse before or, or anyone in the St. John area um, can appreciate the beauty that we have here in this province. And, you know, especially this time of year, it's exemplified when anytime you step out of your house, it's fall leaves and tall trees and a, a, a little view of the river here and there as you drive along. So it's, it's very picturesque. We feel very lucky to be here. And Peter, you're in St. Margaret's Bay. I am, but I know Rothsay very well. My grandmother was born there, and um, my aunt still lives there. Wonderful. Oh, that, now we're going to get caught in a rabbit hole conversation about Rothsay, Peter. I have to ask you, so where where, where in Rothsay? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I think uh, some other time. But yes, I am in St. Margaret's Bay <laughs> where it's cloudy and cold today. Yeah. And so um, it's cloudy and cold. So what's the, what is the setting? What is the setting like? Are you on the water there? Ocean view, but not ocean front. And um, if I really crane my neck, I can see the ocean from the window of my office, but then you probably won't be able to hear me. (laughs) (laughs) And so of course I I have, uh, I have my own, own Rossi connection too, because I actually grew up there and and my mother actually lives uh, very close to you, Catherine, um, just down the street. So I was actually able to go over and have a cup of coffee with her. And uh, and after I dropped off the mic and I, you know, around 10 o'clock, I had to let her know, you know, mom, I got to go because I have to do a podcast with Catherine and Peter. <laughs> but it's a real treat to be able to visit your mom, uh, especially in a COVID uh, kind of world where that doesn't happen for everybody. So I'm glad you could do that this morning, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel very lucky. And, and Catherine, I'm interested in, and with you, Peter, too, but I'll start with Catherine. Uh, Catherine, you're just back to New Brunswick. Can you can you tell us uh, a little bit of your your path um, away from New Brunswick and then finding your way back here? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in New Brunswick, uh, technically born in Saskatchewan, spent my first two years there, but really raised in in New Brunswick. So, you know, I grew up picking potatoes and fiddleheads and splitting wood and I can light a propane lantern and all of that fun stuff that a lot of people seem to have the skill set for growing up in rural New Brunswick. So a village called Bath, which is about two, almost three hours north of here on the western side. So when I left, um, I went to UMB's Renaissance College. And then when I left in 2004, um, I didn't really know if I would be back to New Brunswick, to be honest. 
there wasn't, and that was 16 years ago. So at the time, there wasn't really a booming tech economy. At that time, I didn't really know if the startup tech space is where I really wanted to be. But I certainly didn't have a clear, there wasn't a clarity around this is a great career location for me. So off I went, not knowing if, if there was a return option for me. So went down to Boston to do an MBA and then Toronto for a couple of years and then ended up in Germany for six and a half, um, where I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously was living there with my now husband and, uh, you know, we got married over there and our daughter was born over there. And then uh, back to so six and a half years in Germany, five years in Newfoundland, which we loved. Uh, what a beautiful place to live and wonderful people. And our son was born there. So we have a, a Newfoundlander in our family. So we'll always have a warm spot for Newfoundland. Uh, then to Winnipeg for a year and back to New Brunswick very deliberately um, wanted to come back home where, you know, my parents live here still. So having the option to live in such a beautiful province with such now booming career opportunities to me is a dream come true. I mean, we feel incredibly grateful having lived in a lot of other places. There's wonderful things about living in Germany and a lot of places that we've traveled to, they're, they're incredible places, but none of them really beat the beauty and the serenity and the size and the friendliness that comes with the, the, the Atlantic provinces. Um, you know, back in the land of the rolling hills here in, in New Brunswick is it as an adult, it's been a just a pleasure to bring my family back here and know that we're we're going to hopefully not move again um, and know that we can really put down roots where our, my roots were originally planted and and really contribute to the economy in a way that I'm incredibly excited about. So being back here is a true pr privilege, especially in a time that we're in today in COVID where it's probably one of the safest places to live in the world at the moment. You know, there's some bumps along the way, but overall we have a significant relative freedom compared to uh, the rest of the world. So we're, we're incredibly grateful and lucky to be here. And, and what, uh, what took you to Germany? Um, my husband. <laughs> so I, I met my husband. I don't, I, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I met him um, when I was doing my MBA. I had a um, classmate from Austria who organized the ski trip. So I went on the ski trip and I met him. Uh, at an Afra ski bar in the Austrian Alps uh, in uh, 2006. So we, we, we spent time dating long distance. And then I said, I'm going to relocate to Europe uh, for personal reasons. And I did so and lived there and worked for a company in Toronto called Knightsbridge Human Capital Management. So I did that uh, for about four years, flew back and forth between Toronto and, and Germany, running a team from based in Toronto, running it from Germany. And then, you know, we were married shortly after the move and our daughter was born. So, so I have German family. My in-laws are literally like my German parents. Um, so we're very, very close with them and very sad, of course, like many other people can relate that can't see their parents and family on a regular basis because of COVID. But, you know, Germany is was a fantastic time in, in our lives and we can't wait for travel restrictions to to change so we can experience that more regularly and, and expose our children to more of the German culture as well. And so coming back here to New Brunswick um, to Propel, how did that, how did that come about? I, I was working with a great uh, med tech startup at the time. We, I was in Winnipeg 
and uh, was actually just doing what I normally do, which is networking. And you get a little bit scrappy on LinkedIn and you say, oh, I, I can I have a connection to a connection and I can reach out and I'm going to see if they'll give me some time. And I was scrolling through LinkedIn and saw Barry Besaw's face on my LinkedIn feed. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> he was my professor at UMB once upon a time. And here he is running Propel. I'm going to reach out and he may have some connections for us because we were looking at, at a capital raise for the, the startup at the time. So we connected and and um, he shared with me that he was looking to retire. And um, he said, I think you should put your name in the hat for the job. And I thought, what? No. <laughs> so he was, he was very um, uh, persuasive that this would be a great role. And the timing just happened to line up that we were moving back to New Brunswick anyway for my husband's job. And so I put my name in the hat and, and it was too good to be true, having gotten so lucky to be offered the position from the, the search committee on the board. And they were very gracious to do so. And I, I'm very grateful for it. So the, the stars just sort of aligned and the timing was, was wonderful. And and, you know, I'm just over a month into the job um, in itself. So it's still it's still very new and shiny in many ways. And there's a lot of learning yet to be done. Um, but I'm absolutely, absolutely thrilled to be here. This is, this is a passion of mine being in the, the tech startup space. I love the speed. I love the continuous learning. I love meeting founders that are, you know, coachable and driven. It just it's just so exciting. And, and, you know, they're truly part of our future, a big part of our future. So being able to be play a role in shaping that is is very exciting for me. Now, with you, Peter, like uh, in, in the three years plus that I've, I've been doing this job um, and learning about the tech space in, in, in Atlanta, Canada, you're you're the journalist that I go to. Um, for questions about the tech industry, like in, in, in my estimation, you know, you, you are kind of the, the authority from the point of view of journalism and research, if I can flatter you that way. You do. And, <laughs> and, and so, and, and so I'm curious, how, how did you, what was your path to getting here? Cause I know you also are a longtime journalist as well as uh, running on and all the activities you have around that. Long time. So I've, yeah, I've been doing this quite a while. And um, I was working in at the Chronicle Herald back in the 80s, and I got a job at CP Ottawa. Um, so I spent two years at CP, uh, then left CP and went to Hong Kong without a job. Um, a buddy of mine had written a book on Hong Kong investments in Canada, and he, I was griping about work, and he said, I'll go to Hong Kong, and the, anyone can get a job there. I did. I ended up working for the South China Morning Post. Um, then my, my then fiancé and I moved to Seoul. Um, then we moved back to Hong Kong. I was working for a company then called Knight Ritter. Uh, an American newspaper group that had a financial service. Uh, from there, I went to London with Bloomberg, covered uh, banking for Bloomberg in London, which was a real treat. Uh, from there, I shifted over to an, an American publication called The Deal, which covered corporate finance and M&A, private equity, venture capital. Was their London bureau chief, then moved... Uh, 
Uh, they had an opening in North America. I said, I can do it as long as I, uh, I'll, I can do it from, from Nova Scotia. They agreed to it. Uh, I did that until about uh, 2010 and got laid off and then uh, was looking for something to do and started doing this this online publication about uh, innovation in Atlantic Canada. So there you have it. I circled the globe and ended up where I started. <laughs> back in the Maritimes. Yeah. Well, welcome yeah. back. <laughs> well, thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> and and so, Peter, uh, with with Vester, uh, just describe because I know you you all you profile a lot of uh, you know startups and and you you cover innovation news on innovation news on in, on on investments. Um, you you do you produce reports. On the industry, have I captured it? Like, what what uh, what is the business of Montrevest? We produce news and data on Atlantic Canadian startups, and we define a startup as a company that's owned by Atlantic Canadians, that's commercializing technology and producing a um, producing a, a product for the global market. So we don't do web development companies. We wouldn't cover you know the Atlantic Canadian offices of, of global companies. We look for entrepreneurs who are, who are using innovation to, to grow their business. And we're best known for reporting, uh, re, you know, we're doing our daily reports uh, for, for journalism, but we make our money from gathering and analyzing data on these startups. It's the most exciting uh, part of the Atlantic Canadian uh, economy. And there is a lot of interest in the metrics for this industry. And we, we are basically the only people that have them. And it's, you know, I, I talk about this quite a bit. It's a good model for journalism. Uh, because if you're a journalist selling ads, you've got several problems. Um, I, 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 pref- I We still sell ads, but I much prefer the... The, the premium product route. Right. The, the data, the data analysis and collection. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I decided I wanted to talk to both of you um, earlier this week, um, Peter and Catherine, when I read, and we done, we had done our own story um, on, on you, Catherine as well, and profiled uh, you joining Propel. And, and, and then I read Peter's piece and, um, in that piece, you know, you raise the idea of, of baby unicorns mm-hmm. and creating baby unicorns and focusing on baby unicorns. And, you know, just a few weeks ago, and I know Peter did his own piece as well. Um, I had interviewed uh, Gordon Pitts, uh, who had written Unicorn in the Woods, which was the, the story of, of Radiant 6 and Q1 Labs and and then the legacy of those two companies in, in the region. But they were both uh, very large companies. Uh, that sold for you know around a half a billion dollars each combined, you know just over a billion, and there has obviously been a lot of conversation since then about where is the next Radiant Six, where is the next Q1 Labs, and it sparks lots of really interesting conversations about innovation and scaling up and and investment, venture capital investment. Um, but you know sometimes I have to say to you as somebody who's new to covering this industry, it always felt like a little bit of a weight. You know, weight, and when I say weight, I mean that you know that weight on your shoulders of always looking for and waiting for uh, the next unicorn, the next big company. Um, so when I read your comments in Peter's piece, uh, Catherine, 
uh, about the idea of, of the baby unicorn, it intrigued me. And so I wanted to talk to you guys, um, both uh, for both for your, your perspective, Catherine, uh, and also yours, Peter, from your perspective, covering and, you know, uh, gathering data and analyzing data in this industry for, for a while now. But I should start with you, Catherine, mm-hmm. about what was the, where was the inspiration for coining the phrase baby unicorn? Um, well, I'm delighted that, that you like the idea. And, and, and I will say since um, Peter uh, wrote the article, my LinkedIn has blown up. <laughs> and I've got lots of people, lots of people commenting saying, I love the vision of 100 baby unicorns. How can I help? Um, so the, there's been a fascinating, positive response, first and foremost. And I think the idea came when I joined Propel, I really wanted to understand what are we working towards? What is our goal? So if we have accomplished X, then we are we can be proud that we have been successful. And and a lot of it is, you know, we look at the number of companies we take into our program and, and then the number of sort of graduates of our program. And I kept thinking, I don't think that's enough to make a significant dent in the economy, especially when we're in the middle of a pandemic, a global pandemic, and all of our collective economies are are suffering to the tune of $12 billion already um, across our region since the pandemic hit. So to me, the timing has a lot to do with where I got the idea, Mark, and that's, you know, being able to rally as a region and get behind a collective goal that we can all own and drive towards and and be part of. And I think the opportunity, I, I don't disagree at all with the fact that we should want the next unicorn. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think it's important to look at the timing that we're in and perhaps recalibrate the goal to set a realistic one that we can own as a region, all benefit from as a region, and set our sights on something that we can really grasp in a bit of a sprint. So the next 12, 24 months especially, if we can really focus on producing, let's call it 100 baby unicorns, just for conversation, then the economic impact of that can be very broad, very significant, very stabilizing for the talent Um, we have constant talent challenges as everyone does, but if we can, the economic impacts of a hundred smaller, strong companies, as opposed to one potential, maybe someday unicorn that takes a long time. Um, I, I think we owe it to ourselves to, you know, as Peter said, it's one of the most exciting spaces in our economy. So we've got to give it a leadership position. And I think we're going to be stronger if we do that together. And focusing on baby unicorns is is my way of saying, you know, let's rally together and do this in a way that, that is within our reach and within our skill set and within our grasp. We have a very strong ecosystem. Let's leverage it, work together and and put our economy, get in the driver's seat of our of our economic recovery because you know we we can move around in our Atlantic provinces much better than the rest of the world. So Let's see if we can do it with a shared vision. What do you, what do you think? It what do you think working together on this looks like, um, Catherine? Because obviously you have companies. Well, you you just have to look at the development of those those big companies in Q1 Labs and Radiant Six and see that kind of like that that kind of special cocktail of of the right idea and 
and the right entrepreneur that spots that the idea can be scaled and, and the hustle it takes to get the venture capital. Like that's obviously a very individual stories that are focused on individual companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does it look like for us to work together on this? A couple of things. So especially at Propel, I mean, and I think and I would, I would also suggest that the other accelerators and incubators share this thought is that we focused on founders first. So really identifying those ambitious, coachable, curious um, leaders, and and they're they're very innovative. They can be you know engineers or they can be business folks with um, who who need to bring in some tech talent. That's fine too. Um, but actually, putting them first is is what we're focusing on. So at Propel, we talk about finding, shaping, and launching these great founders. And, and what does that look like? Because, you know, as as you know, we've learned from your interviewing Mr. Pitts and, and the Unicorn in the Woods book, that was a beautiful, unique set of stars that aligned nicely. And recreating that, I think, is very challenging and, and would be amazing if we could do it. But I think if we could, we already would have. Um, so I think focusing on the founders is incredible. But I think there's also the ability for us to work more collaboratively and ensure that the founders are in the right programs for their part, to match the part of the journey they're on from their entrepreneurial perspective. So there are very strong programs across our region, and we're seeing an increased presence of specialization from bounce to ocean superclusters, which which really just, just to me signals the ecosystem is growing and maturing growing for sure and getting having a niche carve out for founders to really pay attention to their unique needs because medtech is completely different than ict like what we focus on at propel so there's there's not an, an obvious fit there but the fact that bounces there and going to help provide a path for medtech i think is incredibly important there are a lot of founders that come in and they are at different spots in their journey and receive different benefits from the various accelerators and incubators in the region. And I think if we almost take a co-parenting approach to these startups, we're going to serve them better. Um, so some of the ideas that we're thinking about tackling at Propel, I mean, I, I plan on actually calling a bit of a town hall meeting <laughs> with a lot of the leaders in, in the industry and saying, look, one, how do you think we could do this together? But some ideas are looking at and Peter's research will play a huge part in this, really um, cleaning up the top of the funnel, how I think of it. So how do founders navigate our ecosystem? It's very complex. There's a lot of over 70 organizations waving the startup flag. Um, So how do we make it easy for founders to navigate our ecosystem seamlessly, to make sure they're not wasting their time, to make sure they're getting into programs that suit their needs at that moment in their journey appropriately. And then, and oftentimes they work with um, two incubators at a time. That's fantastic. That's already a form of co-parenting, if you will. Um, So we can see that happening. The other thing we're looking at at Propel that we want to do in collaboration with the entire ecosystem is make sure that we're building really strong bridges at the launch stage of our respective Um, companies and founders we're working with, really helping build stronger bridges to the investment community. So some of Peter's research will highlight, and that I reference frequently, is that we've seen a very 
that increase, 26% decrease in angel investments within our region. And we need to change that. We need to ensure, we, simp- we can't simply hold out our hands and say, Angel, we need you writing more checks. We can't do that. It doesn't work that way. We need to make sure like, we have the responsibility to show off great investment opportunities for angels. And we're looking at, um, there's going to be a partnership and new presence uh, bringing NACO into the region to revitalize the regional angel network. So the details of that will roll out over the fall. Um, but at the end of the day, we want to make sure there's a lot of great access to early stage capital and all of the accelerators and incubators can work together to showcase those early founders who are ready for that early stage investment. And that's a bit of a layer in our in our ecosystem that, that we need to be that we need to strengthen and we hope to do that. But we would be the all of the ecosystem uh, accelerators and incubators would feed into that successful, hopefully successful angel network. And uh, Peter, you had just, uh, you know, issued your, your annual report a couple of months ago, um, about a month and a half ago. What, what is what is, how do things look from your end? Yeah. The, can I just comment a bit about the baby unicorns? Um, it sort of deals with, uh, with, with, you know the the, the report that we're, we're doing. Um, this is indeed the most exciting part of the Atlantic Canadian economy, but the problem that we have is we're not big enough yet. Uh, case in point, in the last three years, there's only been one company from Atlantic Canada and the Deloitte Fast Fifty. Uh, that was Intro Hive. Uh, in the last year. That measures the fastest growing companies in Canada in the last, or tech companies in the last three years. We don't do really well at the rankings of large tech companies. Um, we need more heft. The, the, you know, the bright shining star right now is Virafin and St. John's. They when they raised uh, 500 million, 515 million last year, they signaled that in the in early 2019 they they passed the million dollar a year mark for revenue, which is really where I think we've got to be heading if we're talking about um, you know a gaggle of baby unicorns. And um, I'm not a biologist; I don't know if unicorns come in gaggles or not, but. Um, <laughs> That's an, another discussion for another time. Um, I bet we have 30 companies with about 5 million to 20 million a year in revenue and are still growing. There are other companies whose, whose revenues have probably leveled off. So I think there's going to be a, a wait before we get to, you know, the companies that that we're really heading to and finding supports for them to do that is really going to be, uh, be hard because it's beyond the scope of accelerators. It's beyond the scope of government backed investment companies. Uh, if there's one thing that the community could probably do, it would be to help these, companies build out their C-suites and build out their depth in terms of executives 
to to build groups of of people that can that can you know repeat sales process processes etc. Um, and I think that's really where we should be heading. Another thing that I think we should probably have is an association of founders led and paid for by the leading innovation companies spanning sectors. So you would have companies like Interhive, like ABK Biomedical in the, in the, um, the, uh, the med tech space so that the founders work together to solve these problems and to, uh, to work on things that, um, that do span the various sectors. Peter, I wouldn't mind getting you to pause for a sec to talk a little bit about um, Verifin and, and who, who they are and what they do. Yeah, Verifin do anti-fraud and anti-money laundering software for the, mainly the banking industry in the U.S. They started off as, um, uh, you know, researchers out of uh, Memorial University developing mining software. I think they started in 2003, thereabouts, and they had this massive pivot to the financial sector, and they've just gone from strength to strength to strength. They had a $60 million deal in 2016, I believe. Most of that money uh, was used to buy out existing investors, and their growth didn't slow down at all. They're still... You know, I think it was 87% growth in revenue that they had a year ago. Um, they've got, I think it's 350 to 400 employees in St. John's. And they're 550 million, $515 million raise was the largest ever by a long shot in Atlantic Canada. And it was the largest growth capital deal ever in Canada. And I use that term because it was debt and equity and nobody knows the, the breakdown outside the, the parties involved in the deal. It may be a unicorn now. I don't know what the valuation of that deal was. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if it valued the company at a billion dollars. I had a, a conversation last week with um, uh, Blair and Rosalind Hislop from Mrs. Dunster's and, and toward the end of our interview, we were talking a lot about how to develop the, the food sector in Atlantic Canada. And because the, you know, uh, the, the Hislops are, are focused on their own business, but they're also focused on, on developing the sector across the region. They have a very strong interest in it. And, and they had uh, talked about creating uh, a culture that's somewhat like how we all perceive the tech sector to be, you know, very collaborative, um, sharing intelligence, um, investing in, in, in multiple different com companies, um, spinning companies off. Uh, and so that, that real sense of collegiality and, 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 and growing together. Uh, and of course the, the radiant six and Q1 lab stories are, are textbook examples of entrepreneurs and inter entrepreneurs and innovators getting together and, and creating high value companies uh, and then seeing spinoff happen from that, seeing people like, you know, Jerry Pond is a popular example in the region of somebody who sees his role as 
nurturing other uh, other companies, not just through investing, but also just through providing support and, and mentorship. Um, hearing you talk about, you know, having seeing founders work closely together, it sounds like you think um, uh, that that culture still needs more deepening in, in the region. Yeah, I mean, I'm really focused on the startup space, but I can see the collaborative approach applying to a lot of industries if they are exporting, especially. And I think that's an important qualification because we don't have many uh, many startups competing against one another. There are a few, and, um, and it can get uh, fraught at times. But if you're not competing against somebody who is basically in the same sector, there's no harm in you competing with each other. I think it would be harder to do in the food industry because there is so much buy local. So you, I assume, would be competing with other groups. Um, but we do have big... Um, you know, big exports in, in seafoods, in, in produce like potatoes, of course. Um, and you've got, uh, you've got big champions like the McCain's, um, the Ganong's. Um, Sobeys is in there in, in food distribution. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot to, that could be done. Now, Catherine, I'm talking about... Uh... COVID is, you know, COVID-19 is being a, a special period um, and, and a kind of time in which we need to question the way we're doing things. And, and I know, Catherine, you talked about this, um, you know, leading towards this idea that you have of, of, of strengthening the support networks and, and focusing more on, on creating the baby unicorn um, and, and 100 if we can do that. Uh, Peter, from your perspective, like how... How have you seen this industry evolve? I know you've, you know, you've, and I say industry, but I guess sector. I know it's 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 uh, it's it's a very deep sector with uh, a lot of different companies inside there in different fields. But how how do you see how we've evolved um, in the last you know decade? But now finding ourselves in in the midst of a pandemic, like are you seeing a shift? So, okay, let's look at it you know things starting march 6 2020 i i guess that's when we all uh, realized the world was different um the big thing right now is there haven't been a lot of failures this year there really haven't there have been a few projects put on hold uh there may be uh, an increase in zombie companies this year, but just talking to people in, in, the, in the, the, the startup system, there have not been the failures that everybody was worried about in March. Catherine, I'm sure you've heard the same thing. Yeah, it's, re it's really interesting. I'll chime in there, Peter, with you, is that from a startup, very early pandemic days, so the March-April timeframe, what we saw was a bit of a shell shock where people were figuring out, what does this mean? I have a deal on the go. Is it going to shut down my deal? I'm trying to get into these to pitch to these VCs. Is that going to happen? So there was a bit of a shock and then adjustment period. And then people got used to the fact that they were going to still figure out how to get deals done, even though they hadn't met the founders. So that is not happening, I would say, at a faster pace, but it's not it's not 
gone off the table altogether. So deals are still closing. Um, I will comment, Peter brought up a good point around export focused companies. So companies that can be based here, um, we are in at Propel, we encourage them very quickly. It's fine if they start with a customer base in Atlantic Canada, but to really scale, we're a region of 2.3 million people. That's typically just not going to, the, the metrics don't lend itself to that here. So we very quickly encourage our founders to say, great, it's fine to have some use cases in the region. Let's make sure we do that. But then you're, you're quickly exporting your, your software in our case um, uh, to the rest of the world. And that's where that growth is going to come from. But if the roots are here, if the training is here, if the initial capital is here, which will hopefully secure the talent here. So you're really creating that headquartered uh, feeling that has a lot of potential for growth and virtual reach to the rest of the world is, is really what we're looking at. Um, that's where we see a lot of a lot of the opportunities. So and I've been approached already by some VC shops from uh, Chicago, for example, saying we invest in about a company a month, which is a good pace for this size VC shop. And we want access to your companies because I think there's a bit of a, and this is a hypothesis. I don't have, I would say enough concrete data to, to prove that this is a, a trend where we can expect, but and they're, cause they're not the only phone call I've gotten, but I think there's enough going on in our region that represents the right ingredients for a bit of a hotbed of tech companies bubbling up. And I think investors are seeing that from outside and wanting to look and say, what are the quality of the companies coming out of this region? What do they look like? And, and, it, it is important to know that, you know, our ecosystem is full of great incubators and accelerators. We, I want to have that stronger bridge into um, capital raise, uh, those first very important early uh, rounds of, of raising funds. And then really getting into a scale-up space, which does go beyond a lot of our accelerators. What does that look like for them? And hopefully there's strong opportunities to pair our local companies uh, with local, I would say, more established companies like McCain or Irvine or what have you. So they can really get some of their test cases and and customer testimonials locally. And there's a great program going on here in New Brunswick specifically called Digital Boost. And it's to do, and I, I don't know all the details, but I certainly know that it's to really help more established companies digitize in a, in a, in a way forward. So in really matching young innovative companies with more robust, secure, traditional companies to help them pivot in a COVID world where they're also needing to shift and understand and not fail and stay, you know, stay above water and, and modernize. And, and we have a lot of the resources here to do it, but they're not necessarily well known. Um, so as you talk about failure, Peter, I, I think you're right. There's not been a lot of companies just folding up shop uh, one of the things that, that we encourage our founders to do and our coaches do the best at this is they've really got to learn how to um, assess the market development and listen to customers. It's live listening because they're selling to customers in other parts of the world where they're still struggling with COVID and their kids are in and out of school and they're in and out of shutdowns and, and are their buying behaviors normalized yet? And the answer is probably not. So having some agility within their sales process is, is part of what we need to listen to. Um, or, and we coach our founders to do so because 
growing a company in a COVID time, if your roots are in Atlantic Canada, the growth isn't, it'll hopefully start here in many cases or can start here in many cases, but the growth has to come from outside of our $2.3 million or 2.3 million in population. It has to come outside of our borders at the end of the day. So Catherine, could I jump in with a question? Yes, please. The, the people from outside the region and outside Canada who are contacting you, are they interested in the tech companies that they've heard about from here, or are they interested in the region because it can function fairly normally because it's the land COVID almost forgot? Peter, I've been waiting for the confirmation that it was because of we're, we're the COVID-free land. I haven't heard it specifically described like that. I've been I've been searching for it because I personally feel like it's an advantage that we can leverage. Um, but I have, but it has been more around specific deal flow and wanting to get in on new early opportunities. But I will not, I will not hesitate to continue turning over rocks to see if there's something there, um, because I think it's important. I think it's important for recruitment as well. Yeah, yeah. We reported earlier this week on uh, a. Toronto VC, uh, Canadian Business Growth Fund, which is backed by the major banks and insurers in Canada. And it's a fairly recent fund. Mm-hmm. They, their minimum investment is $3 million, and they just invested in LifeRaft, a Halifax company. And earlier in the year, they uh, invested in Propel. I'm sorry, Proposify. So they've made 16 investments and two of them are Atlantic Canadian. So we've got 3% of the Canadian population, but we have 12.5% of the, the you know, of this, com- of this fund's portfolio, mm-hmm. which it's pretty impressive. It's just sort of another indication that we're punching above our weight. How do you account for that, Peter? I think there's a lot of things. And I think we could have the, is government funding of these companies a good thing? Um, I'm pretty conservative in my politics, but I also recognize that governments have to do something for economic development. And backing startups, uh, as I defined them earlier, is pretty good policy. So there's the programs that are, that are, uh, that are available here. Uh, the unsung hero in all this is ACOA. The ACOA is a client of mine. I'll say it, but things like uh, their, you know, their business development program, which uh, they used regionally, has now become the uh, regional regional economic growth through innovation program, which is a national program. So. One part of our innovation infrastructure is that a funding innovation here has been taken nationally, has been taken national. Um, The other thing is, I think from the get-go, there was a realization that four four tiny provinces can't do it on their own. And we have to set aside our historic bickering and work together. And it hasn't been a... 100% 100% success, but it's, it's been pretty damn good. And there's pretty good collaboration. Again, kudos to uh, to ACOA for, 
you know, placing all the business accelerators and incubators, as they call them, in a room and making them collaborate. I would echo the, echo the influence that ACOA has had within our economy uh, or our ecosystem particularly. I think without them, it's fair to say a lot of the ecos- the incubators and accelerators wouldn't even exist. Um, so their, their presence is critical and and we have to, I think we have a responsibility to use those funds very wisely and and it goes back again I I often have the thought around you know we are a 2.3 million um, million people location population wise so we really need to focus on quality so I know Peter you talk about the zombie companies if there's any way we can help reduce the presence of zombie companies by some of the, you know, the bring them into an accelerator or incubator and really help drive that market validation, that product market fit quickly, um, then have that founder either fail fast, which is which has been the case. We have some alumni in our program now who have come in for the second time because they va- quickly validated their first idea. You know, there wasn't a market for it, but they're back at it because the focus on focusing on the founder and growing the skills of that founder are critical within our program. So they come back as second time founders. They've learned an awful lot along the way from, uh, you know, bumps along the road as every, every entrepreneur has bruises from, from their journeys. And, um, you know, they're, they're succeeding incredibly well, the second kick at the can. So we're, we're incredibly excited to see that, but a focus on quality and, really coaching and developing the right kind of skills to assess markets, sell, sell, sell. That's an incredibly important one that, that we spend a lot of time with our founders uh, on because once they, you know, prove that they validated a product market fit, identified their ideal customer profile and have a solution that where they've really worked on market development and learned a repeatable, scalable sales process, then they're just ready to fly. Uh, and that's what gets us really excited. So the more the more founders we can help build the right skill set, the more quality we can hopefully see come through our collective funnels um, because we just can't play the numbers game. We're, we're even if we even when we work together, we're 2.3 million, not 20 million. You know, there's 5,000 startups in, Sam, in Silicon Valley. We're never going to have 5,000. So we we really, fo- us focusing on quality together, um, I think is going to produce better results. I, I like the idea too, Catherine, of, of supporting uh, the people who are trying for a second time or a third time. And that that whole notion of, you know, failing fast and, and then getting back on your feet, because it, it feels like in this, in this, in this region, um, if, if, if something, if something fails, you get that sense that someone's not going to try again, that, that, you know, that a failure means that you go and do something else. Um, and it feels like in the tech community and in the tech sectors globally, that attitude doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, you know, you, just because you, you, you fail at your first crack at a company, it doesn't mean that you're not going to succeed wildly at, at the second or the third one. You got it. Yeah, resilience is uh, a key trait characteristic that you see in a lot of founders and and it's a good one. It's an important one. It should be nurtured and supported and encouraged. There's tough, tough moments in the, in the life of a founder and failures are absolutely part of the journey. I, I don't know that, and, and Peter, you would have a great lens on this. You don't meet many founders who just simply succeeded. 
they, it just it's not that it's not a story that's common. There's there's a lot of struggle and failure along the way um, before anyone hits it big and, and you hear them in the hear about them in the news. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I was at a NACO meeting yeah, about ten years ago, and there was a fascinating debate. A group of investors was debating: Do you want to back someone who's never had a failure? because then he's not aware of, you know, the dangers lurking, or do you want to avoid people who have had failures? Because obviously there's, there's a problem in the way they do things. Um, nobody reached a conclusion, but um, yeah, you, uh, you learn a lot from things not going right. I'm on my uh, I'm on my third media startup, so I'm like you know third time's a charm. <laughs> and I'll, I'll share I'll share my personal failure, and I'm very very proud of it. So I had my own startup that I ran in out of Germany, and we were selling to um, our audience was in Canada, and you know spent a whole bunch of my savings and and spent a year basically failing slowly, and it was miserable and and. I, I even when I was interviewing for this position, um, the the committee search committee on the board had said, tell us what it was like to be a founder. And I said, well, I got all excited and you're very confident about starting your own business. And then you jump in and it's literally like jumping into the deep end and you suddenly forget how to swim. You're constantly trying to stay above water as a founder and you're constantly worried about cash and the product and what do the customers think? And am I talking to them enough customers? And at the end of the day, um, it was one of my most, uh, it was a fantastic failure, uh, but probably the most intense learning year of my life. And I taught myself how to sell. Um, I, I literally had to give myself a pep talk before I made every cold call, but I did it and I got good at it. And you have to, um, I wish I had had a propel coach at that time, but I, I didn't have access to that at the time. Um, but it, it's such an incredible what you can learn from your failures is the most important part. And founders who who can have that self-awareness and, and be able to reflect and understand, wow, that sucked, but I've learned X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to take that with me, take that with me into my next uh, venture. It's incredibly important. And me having been able to develop the confidence and the ability to, to sell and, and interact more directly and, and in a uh, discovery fashion with customers and potential markets has has really grown my career well along along the way. It's a very transferable skill set. So um, I was very very pr- proud to have had that founder failure opportunity uh, throughout my career. Catherine, you you had mentioned uh, earlier you'd raised briefly um, McCain and and some of the innovations that have happened around around McCain and. It made me think, uh, Peter, uh, cast my mind back to a piece that I think you wrote in early 2019 on on McCain as 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 a as a big potential player in in the innovation scene. Even though it's you know it's it's known mostly as a global global food company. Um, so I have a, a question that you know I put to you, Peter, but also be interested in your thoughts as well, Catherine. Is around the role of of the big traditional companies in, in our region that, you know, have been successful for generations and are still quite, quite large. And uh, companies I think of, I think of McCain Foods, obviously, um, obviously think of the, you know, the Irving group of companies from oil and gas to, you know, to, to forestry. 
Um, and I also think of, you know, companies that are growing quite large, like Cook Aquaculture. Um, you know, these are, these are quite large billion dollar firms that have been around for a long time. And curious to know your thoughts about them as, as potential innovation centers, but also as potential supporters of, of tech startups and the tech startup scene. Yeah, we um, we definitely need more interaction between you know the startups and the traditional industries, and we need them for two two reasons. One is the startups can learn a lot in business practice, especially about the um, the growth of executive talent that I uh, talked about earlier. But on top of that, our traditional companies need to get better at R and D and. The startups are the guys who are doing it around here. Um, our universities are fantastic at, at doing research. They're getting a lot better at applied research. But our private sector R&D in Atlantic Canada is woeful. Uh, the studies show, the Statistics Canada reports show that we're among the worst places in, in North, you know, in, in, well, in Canada and the U.S. for it, and we need to get better. So the more interaction that, uh, that you know, the, the traditional companies and the startups have, the better, and hopefully it's a two-way street uh, in discussing it. And it's, um, it's where the Creative Destruction Lab and Springboard both play an important role. Do you see example? McCain would be would, would be the, the you know the the shining example, and I'm just looking around. You know, McCain's work with Trueleaf of Hello, you know, it's a Halifax company. Um, what they're doing together in their uh, the especially in the plant in Guelph is is really impressive. It's gone a bit quiet, even though the, the plant opened recently. But what they're working on there is applying AI to the indoor growth of plants. And when you, not just for how fast you can grow them, but what conditions produce the most nutritious plants, uh, the most valuable plants, uh, they're gathering data that's really going to change the way indoor plants are grown so that, you know, we in Atlantic Canada one day won't be relying on California for our lettuce. It'll be grown around here. It would mean that in Saudi Arabia, they could be growing plants year around. In none of it, they could be growing really healthy greens, uh, you know, using local, local uh, workforce. It's uh, it's an exciting vision. I'll add to that, if I may, Mark, if that's okay. I think McCain um, also worked with a company called Fiddlehead, and were able to develop a software to help to forecast demand, if I'm not mistaken. And those early customer references are speak volumes in terms of your next customer. Um, so basically enabling that partnership early on even though, and, and I don't know the details, but let's say Fiddlehead wasn't incredibly uh, profitable from that experience. Maybe they were, I, I don't know. But having McCain as a reference is critical. And and Peter mentioned R&D, which I think is important. If, if large established global companies 
were able to actually shift their R&D, traditional R&D spend to almost an innovative startup um, test base the, and, and say, we've identified three specific problems we have within our large companies, and we'd like local tech companies to see if they can come in and solve them and digitize them. Um, I think that would be a, a fantastic way to spend time and money. Um, some programs may already be underway that I'm just not aware of yet, but I can imagine, you know, in local, local, um, global companies embracing the tech startups. Um, it's not an obvious thing, but it's something we need to do deliberately, uh, to ensure the test cases are here locally and that there's innovation, productive innovation happening for those companies. As the world continues to pivot and modernize, there's a lot of the solutions can be found right here in our backyards. Is that going to become more important? Because I know in in in, in the pandemic, uh, it's limited our ability to actually get out into the world. I mean, we created an Atlantic bubble, right? Which means that, you know, our founders aren't able to get out right now to look actively, you know, face-to-face for venture capital investment. Um, and those interactions are limited in terms of searching for customer markets and search uh, in terms of searching for investment. Is, is focusing locally and looking at some of those potential relationships with big players who are already here uh, and then, you know, the smaller companies that are looking to grow, is that going to become more important? I hope so. <laughs> I really do, Mark. I think it makes uh, an awful lot of sense to for us l- regionally to use our networks in a very aggressive way um, to help open the important doors for our founders and use local established companies brand with their brands and experience that they already bring to the table as test beds for great growing young technology that still needs to be molded. But in res- but they need to do that by listening to a potential customer. And if those potential customers can be found more easily through our networks, then we need to do it. And and that's, you know, what, what Jerry Pond is always so good at it, pairing uh, great partners, if you will. So, um, you know, on, on that theme, I think it's something we need to look at doing very deliberately. Uh, within our networks and there it's a strong networked region you know i feel like i'm getting to know it for the first time in a way although i grew up here but it's still an introductory network for me in in many ways but it's incredible no one no one tells you no they won't introduce you to someone so we we often encourage our founders ask for introductions stick your neck out ask for introductions there's a really good chance someone knows somebody who can help you out and and being deliberate about it i think is an important part of the mix Three quick comments. One is there's been a silver lining with not being able to to jump on a plane and go places, and that is that uh, customers, potential customers, are more willing to take Zoom calls and phone calls than before. They're more used to being pitched that way, and that's cut down the costs uh, of sales and uh, the the turnaround times in some cases. Um, there have been People, I think of real data AI in in Halifax, a Propel graduate uh, who just signed on the largest on-land fish farm in the world for their technology, or uh, I'm sorry, in the U.S. Point one. Point two is there are risks involved in leaning too much on local companies because your price points may be different here for a SaaS product than, than elsewhere. And 
If you do go after local clients, keep in mind that uh, there's more. Don't lock into your price points because you might get more out of larger institutions elsewhere. The third thing is that one of the real uh, advances we've seen in the last year or so is health authorities becoming active in the development of med techs in the sector. Medtech in, in, in the region, rather. Uh, it started with the Bounce Health, Bounce, Bounce Health in St. John's, and now Nova Scotia Health, Health, Health Authority is getting much more active uh, with uh, what they're doing with Volta and their, their pitching competitions. And that's really important because in selling Medtech, if you're not selling to your local health authorities, then no one else is going to look at you. Kind of closing our, our conversation, I kind of like to return to, um, you know, what we started talking about in the beginning, which is and what inspired this conversation, which is around uh, the creation of the of the baby unicorns. And I know ne- neither, neither one of you, uh, Peter, you as a journalist or, or Catherine, you a Propel, I don't want to put you in the, in the position of picking winners, um, but would just love to know your your sense of, you know, some of the companies that really are jumping out uh, for you around the region. Um, I'll name a couple of very early ones that I've sat on calls recently. We've got Real Data, um, Milk Movement is a is a Propel alum. Vroom is a is a really cool company that's that's I, I think poised to do great things. Um, Oliver POS, a, another great company. Uh, food Bite, fascinating what they're tackling in the food safety uh, space. So these are these are founders who are what we they have a lot of characteristics of outstanding outstanding founders. They're coachable, they're selfless, they have incredible drive and ambition, they are smart, they can listen to customers, they can evolve their processes along the way and just really mission driven. Um, and our coaches, it's an absolute delight for our coaches to work with them and you can hear it in our coaching voices because they work with tons of, of, of founders um, and they bubble up as, as rising stars. Prosper, who won our summer showdown, lots of excitement around them uh, joining our program and, and to see what they're going to do. And, you know, we're in their corner and going to help them in any way they can through our, through our program. So excited to see if there's some baby unicorns born. And, and we're also very happy to, to co-parent them with other programs that, that they have been involved in or will be involved in because that that's got to be part of how we see this going forward. Can you tell me, because um, you mentioned several companies there, just tell me a bit about a couple of them. Uh, there seemed to have been, because this is where my interest has been the last couple of weeks, a couple of food tech businesses in there. So gosh, and Peter, you may be able to even help me round it out more than I can. So Food Bite, for example, they focus on uh, food safety and making sure that the regulatory um, ch- uh, changes and standards are transparent and accessible. And, and I may be getting that wrong. I apologize to the founders if I'm messing that up. Um, so that's something that's very exciting. Um, Real Data is actually focused on land-based fish farms. Peter, that's correct, isn't it? What they do is they provide AI, uh, video-based AI for... Um for yeah, land-based fish farms so that you don't have to, you know, take fish out of the pen to, to show how big they are or whether there's a disease present. 
What are a couple that stand out for you, Peter? Okay, let's take one from each province, and it's which is kind of hard to do. In PEI, Forestry IO is a, an exciting company. What they do is they're they're deep enough technology that I have a hard time describing it, and I risk saying the wrong thing. But they make it easier for non-tech people to um, to work in the cloud on, on websites. I haven't explained it well, but trust me, it's a really exciting company. It was the first Canadian company ever to do um, an AngelList financing syndicate. Newfoundland would be Colab Software. Uh, it was one of two companies in Newfoundland last year to go into Y Combinator. They do 3D collaborative software for engineers. Uh, they are away to the races, as we say. Uh, for Nova Scotia, I'd say ABK Biomedical. Um, they've raised uh, a lot of money. They raised 40 million U, uh, Canadian dollars last year. They've been quiet. They're, they raised that money without being in the market yet. And uh, I'd love to see what happens with them when they do get in the market. And I think in New Brunswick, um, New Brunswick would be IntroHive. You know, IntroHive is still growing rapidly. And um, Jody Glidden seems intent on, um, on building that unicorn that we've all been talking about. So that's your pick for the unicorn. I would say so. I mean, is anybody growing faster these days than, than IntroHive? Um, I'm sure there's somebody out there who would probably be, you know, Carbon Cure is, you know, how many companies here can say they've got Bill Gates as an investor? Right. And remind us again what Carbon, Carbon Cure does. Carbon Cure injects concrete with carbon dioxide. So the process of creating concrete doesn't spill uh, CO2 into the environment. It actually reduces it. And it makes a better quality concrete at uh, competitive prices. And they're in, I think it's last count I heard was 140 different concrete plants around the world. And they just raised, they raised around, they didn't say how much, but it was led by a group that's backed by Mike Bloomberg, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Jack Ma. And I would estimate that it's upward of $20 million. Uh, just, you know, reading through the tea leaves of various things around, uh, you know, various hints that we're getting. That's quite a group of investors. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much. Um, uh, but before, before we close, any, any final thoughts from, from both of you, Catherine? I just look forward to, you know, continuing to get to know the, the ecosystem. I think we're at a magical moment in time where we can choose to operate collectively and, and collaboratively even more so than we have in the past and, and on behalf of founders. And I think, you know, Baby Unicorns is, you know, even a fun idea. We can call it whatever we want, but the purpose is to align us around a shared vision we can all work towards so we can really help elevate the economic recovery of our region. 
And I think um, doing it together is is going to be fantastic. And I've already, you know, a lot of people have said, yep, how can we do this? And, and they're game and they're eager. So putting a plan in place that actually enables that and, and it's not just talking about it, but there's action around that. Um, I'm excited to help drive forward and, and excited for anyone who has further ideas who can contribute to how we can do that. Um, because I think we owe it to the region as a, as a sector, as a technology startup sector to take responsibility for recovery. Uh, and I think we can definitely do it. We've got all the right pieces in, in place here. Well, just, um, you know, we do produce our data. And I th- I've been talking to, 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 to people already about our, our 2020 data. We're going to try to do a preliminary report early in the new year because I think the data for this year is so very important. We're just going to try to, to do a summation of new companies, failures, and the size of the startup sector. We'll get into to deeper metrics around employment, uh, uh, funding, revenue later in the year. But uh, the big question, are: do we have more companies? Do we have fewer failures? Um, just get a snapshot of how Atlantic Canada has done through the pandemic. And I know you're a data you're a data person, Peter. First, but what, what's your sense of of how we're doing? I think angel funding will still be you know a problem this year. Um, I get the impression with raises like Sonray and Carbon Cure that the start the the numbers for VC will look okay. Revenue probably we've had revenue growth of greater than seventy percent each of the last three years. I think that'll diminish this year. The big story really, and we haven't talked about it, is the stock market because there's been $70 million uh, raised or to be raised by by innovation companies that are listed publicly in 2020. And that's a big story. And how is that a big story? Because this is companies that will become baby unicorns, or I'm sorry, might become baby unicorns that have found a way to very quickly get tens of millions of dollars in capital. Uh, companies like IMV, Metamaterial, um, you know, the, the one everyone's been talking about this year is, is uh, um, uh, Soma Biotech. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's interesting seeing what's happening in the publicly listed companies. Tell us a bit about Soma. Soma basically has, it's a nanotechnology I misspoke. It was Sona Nanotech. Um, It's a nanotechnology company, and they're doing uh, gold nanoparticles for testing. And they pivoted in March to come up with a a very quick, inexpensive test for COVID that they've been uh, pushing through regulators. Its shares went from, I think, 11 cents each on January 2nd. I think it hit a high... $8, I think. Anyway, there was about $800 million of value created. Now, they've come back since then. I haven't checked on them lately, but it's just wild stock market fluctuations. And they haven't raised any any capital throughout it. Do, do you think publicly traded companies, that's going to become more, uh, more important for the Atlantic as it develops with regards to tax? I believe so. And there haven't been... Uh, 
really, you know, notable IT uh, listings. There, there might be one day. Um, yeah, it's so far it's worked out with IMV, with Sona, with Apple I, which has raised $27 million this year. Um, and I think, I think that is that four of them anyway. Yeah. So far, so good. The, the danger is that it's, uh, you know, it adds on to regulatory costs and, uh, and, um, if you're listing on the, the venture exchange, there's not a lot of liquidity. So you get into the point where your, your company is worth, or your shares are worth two or three cents, uh, a share eternally. Um, that's, that's a risk. Because, I mean, in this, this region, it's a, a conversation we don't have a lot because traditionally, you know, we're a region that's been built on successful uh, private companies. And obviously, I'm thinking of the, the big traditional ones that we, we all know about with the, the, with the Irvings and the McCains of, of the region. Um, so it, it's a relatively new conversation for us to talk about the role of markets and the role of public invest, investments in those publicly traded companies. Yeah, there there have been exceptions, you know, Killick, uh, um, not Killick, Killam Properties. Um, they raised a lot of capital to to build up their uh, their, their property empire. Um, iMagic uh, TV, you know, it's it's where Marcel LeBron got uh, got his feet wet back in the back uh, before the dot or during sadly the the dot com crash. Um, there, and we've been active with junior mining companies. All right. Well, thanks very much, uh, Catherine and Peter. Uh, I hope, hopefully this is just part one. I really enjoyed this chat and, and, uh, maybe we'll, we'll do, uh, try and do a check-in of some kind, uh, early next year. Once you've uh, seen that early data, Peter. I'd really enjoy that, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Mark. And Peter, it was a pleasure to, to be able to chat with you today. And, and Mark, we look forward to the next one. All right. Well, thank you very much and have, have a great afternoon. You too. You've been listening to the latest episode of Huddle Home Office. And that was my conversation with uh, Catherine Lockhart and Peter Marrera. Thank you very much for that chat, Peter and, uh, and Catherine. I uh, really enjoyed it. Huddle Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legere, and Sharice Letson. And you can find uh, Huddle Home Office on your favorite podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google Play or Stitcher, wherever uh, you listen to podcasts. And you can also find uh, my interview um, with uh, Gordon Pitts, the author of Unicorn in the Woods, which uh, came up in this episode. And uh, I spoke to Gordon uh, a few weeks ago. So if you go uh, into the archives on the uh, huddle.today website under podcasts, you can find it there and you can also find it on your podcast platform. And please do subscribe. And uh, also, uh, if you um, have a friend you think might be interested, suggest the show to them too. And we will talk to you next week.